Let's seek the Lord's aid as we come to the Word. We, Father, have sung the Word and we've sung to You and we've announced our confession of trust in You. Lord, as we come now to the Word that You have revealed by Your Spirit through the Apostle Paul, we thank You for this letter. We thank You for how it is sanctifying us. We pray by Your mercies that You would draw to Christ those who are separated from Him and that You would edify and build up your church as we consider these words together. Father, help us to labor, to rightly understand the scriptures, what they're teaching, and Lord, to trust under your hand that you are bringing us to this text today for a reason, to build us up as an assembly, and we pray then for the conviction of the Spirit, for the instruction of the Spirit, and we ask that the word would not return empty but would accomplish all that you desire in our hearts today. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Love gives. Love always gives. And love loves to give. Love rejoices to sacrifice self for the benefit of the beloved. It's exhausting... It's hard work, but a loving mother rises self-sacrificially in the middle of the night to feed her newborn. And that brings her joy to do so. She'd have it no other way. For love of the game, for love of the music, athletes and musicians make hard sacrifices to excel at their craft. And of course, the ultimate example of love's giving nature we've sung about this morning we gather around this table here today and that is the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ God so loved the world that he gave he gave his son and in love the son laid down his life to save his people from their sins our eternal life depends on this good news of love giving for our salvation. But Christ's loving sacrifice for our salvation also serves as a standard. It serves as an example to which the growing Christian is ever learning to calibrate all of life. It is what Christ has done for us, first and foremost. But that is itself a pattern. And one that we want to continue to see our lives following. So as we learn to calibrate our lives to the gospel, we come to understand that one of the great sacrifices that love makes is the sacrifice of personal freedom. To lay down my privilege, my right, my freedom for the spiritual benefit of others is emulating the love of Christ for us. Our world doesn't really know what to make out of that sacrifice. Because the world in which we live sees freedom as one of the highest values in our human existence, but freedom is mostly seen as the ability to do what I want to do without constraints imposed upon me by others. That's freedom. Freedom in our society is liberty to say what I want to say 
to do what I want to do, to determine my own identity, to rule as Lord over my own life. That's freedom. But brothers and sisters in Christ, because of the way that Christ loved us, how he loved us, we are called to display a kind of love that sacrifices personal freedom for the profit of others. It takes the freedoms that we have and it lays them down. In the text before us today, the Apostle Paul ties up some loose ends as he concludes chapters 8 through 10. And remembering as we come back into the context after a brief break last week, The Corinthians earlier rejected Paul's counsel not to eat meat sacrificed at idol temples. These pagan temples all around serving as something of a restaurant of the day, they were not to go there and eat in that place because to do so was to cooperate in some sense with the demonic realm that is pushing this whole agenda of pagan temples and pagan worship. Well, it hit them about as well as it would hit us to be told that we can't go to a restaurant. And they pushed back at Paul and said, wait a minute, that can't be, you're not thinking theologically. You're not thinking appropriately. You don't really understand the freedom that we have in Christ. We can go there, we can eat that food, it's not a big deal. And he has taken a lot of time to work toward that conclusion in chapter 10. You can't eat there. It is an identification with the demonic realm in parallel, opposite parallel, to what we do around the Lord's table when we identify with Christ. So in pushing back against this, the Corinthians also began to then question on some level, and for other reasons as well, Paul's apostolic authority to tell them what to do in the first place. And so he is is laboring here to establish that authority on some level. It's a minor issue here, but that's part of the conversation. But remember in chapter 10 and verse 19, as we get to the heart of his instruction to them, he says, what do I imply? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? Verse 20, no, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? You see yourself as strong in being able to eat at these pagan temples. Are we stronger than God himself? Just speaking in a sense almost sarcastically here. That's his conclusion. Paul is concerned about what? not concerned about the meat. He's concerned about their devotion to Christ. He's concerned about their testimony to unbelievers in the city of Corinth who will confuse the Christian's participation in these meals with their own pagan worship and rejection of God. But why does Paul go there? Why does he draw that conclusion about that issue in their situation? Why does he... What are his interests in this matter? The answer is found as he finishes out this section through chapter 11 and verse 1 
at the conclusion here, we find his answer in two lines of exhortation, which sort of finish out the conversation and help us very directly here today. The first idea that he lays out in this passage is that we need to learn to lay down freedoms for the spiritual good of others. As we calibrate our lives to the gospel, to the example of Christ, we need to learn to lay down freedoms for the spiritual good of others. The principle is asserted here in verses 23 and 24, verse 23 of chapter 10. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. I think the ESV has it right here in putting this phrase in quotation marks. All things are lawful. Paul is very likely quoting one of the favorite slogans of the Corinthians. They love to say this. In Christ, indeed, we are no longer subject to the Mosaic law. He's not disagreeing with them as such when they say all things are lawful. When we had four young children living in our home, Beth and I issued a lot of rules. When tucked into bed, thou shalt stay in bed. He who occupies the lower bunk bed shall not kick the underside of the bunk above. And if he who occupies the top bunk gets kicked from below, he may call mom and dad. He cannot throw things at the man below. And on and on and on it went, right? You understand. Now when those four now grown children come to visit us in our home, the great joy we got no rules. There's no rules. As adults, their love and respect for us steers everything. Our relationship steers it all. No need for house laws. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean that they come into our home and do whatever they want, right? We don't know we'd say that. That's not the conclusion. Of course, our relationship steers how they act as adults. And all is well. Our relationship then is now driven not by the rules, but by love. By a maturity of love that doesn't need the rules. It's driven by the law of love. United by spirit baptism to Christ's death, to sin and resurrection life, we are no longer under the dictates of the Mosaic law. Like children in a home, we don't need those rules as such. That does not mean that we are free to sin. No one would take it that way that understands what it means to be united with Christ. It is as wrong today as it was under the old covenant to lie, to steal, to hate others, to commit adultery. But the governor of our lives is not the law. Our union with Jesus Christ directs us forward by the law of love for Him, and thus, in that sense, all things are lawful. We have freedom in Christ to discern what pleases the Lord. And we won't always agree as Christians on what that is. That makes life complicated. 
But that's our reality. In love for Christ, we draw conclusions about what is best, what is righteous, what is holy and sanctifying, and sometimes we disagree. But Paul exhorts the Corinthians to realize this insistence on Christian freedom is lacking an important component. All things are lawful, but, he says, not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things edify, build up, encourage faith in Christ. You know that category? There's some things I could do that will not, in fact, build others up in the faith. There's a lot of Christians, I think, that don't have that category. They think of it as simply a right and a wrong, and that's the end of it. But Paul is obviously tracking a different direction here. All things are lawful, but some things are not useful for building up the body of Christ. So, what is Christ honoring is not whatever you want to do, period. My freedoms in Christ must be calibrated to what is spiritually profitable for others, what builds up others in the faith. So Paul now puts that general observation in verse 23 into a specific exhortation that harmonizes the Christian life with the gospel. With Christ, the one who loves and gives, the one who lays down his life, here's the principle, verse 24, live by it. Let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. Let no one seek his own good is not absolute unqualified statement, of course. We are called by God to work, to provide for our families, to exercise stewardship of our bodies and our resources, to brush your teeth is doing yourself good. That's not what he's saying. What does he mean? He speaks of seeking our own good over others. My good at the expense of others. My good with no regard for others. That kind of self-seeking is incompatible with life in Christ. He expands that idea to the Philippians when he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Notice how he puts it there. He just puts it a bit differently there. Look to your own interests. He's not contradicting himself here. We've got to catch his point. Look not to your own interests only, but also to the interests of others. And you see the connection. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It is because of the work of Christ that we can even think like this. To put others ahead of self. It's radical. So he states the principle here in verses 23 and 24, and then moves to applying that principle in verses 25 through 30. And he'll take a little bit of time to do that. We'll move through it fairly quickly. But he says in verse 25, 
For the earth is the Lord's, I'm sorry, verse 25, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Freedom in Christ, Paul is saying with this statement in verse 25, is indeed freedom. The macellum or marketplace was the ancient equivalent of our shopping malls. In the Roman Empire at major cities, they were usually laid out in a large rectangle. In the middle of the rectangle was a fountain. And on the outside, the rim of the rectangle were pillars, stone columns that would hold up a roof over the very outside of the rectangle in which were shops. And so the fun place to go, there was a fountain there, there was a roof, a domed roof over that held up by the pillars, and you could go into these shops all around the edge and congregate in the middle, very similar to what we do with a shopping mall today. But usually the most important shop in there was the grocery store, the place where generally they would just offer meat. You grew your own vegetables and got grain in other places, but The meat had to be carefully prepared and preserved, and so you bought that there in the marketplace. So this is what Paul is picturing. If you go into that, go into the pagan temples, don't eat there. Don't participate with the false worship that's taking place there. But in the marketplace, you go to a place, there's meat there that has been offered to idols. Can you eat it? Absolutely. The gods to whom such meat is sacrificed are a fiction. It's not possible for meat to be tainted by the influence of an imaginary god. So feel no guilt about eating meat that's offered in pagan ritual. God created the cow, and providentially that meat's hanging there for you to enjoy. So feel free to buy it. Eat it, enjoy it. Any guilt in doing so is bad theology. Now make sure you eat in faith. If you cannot eat in faith, or your conscience will not permit you to do so, don't violate your conscience on that. But there's nothing wrong with eating meat purchased at the market. really counters our own world a bit, doesn't it? People who will only eat kosher or halal meat, ritually slaughtered and blessed, actually hold a weak view of God. Nothing wrong with blessing meat. We bless it as well as we pray over it before a meal. But it's a meat that's not blessed. That's seen as tainted. What Paul is saying is verse 26. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. You're not understanding that God has already blessed all meat. He needs no help with a rabbi or an imam. There are no spiritual cooties that can attach to meat. It's just meat, and God made it. And Paul supports this position now with the scripture text in verse 26. The earth is the Lord's. That's his biblical support, Psalm 24 and verse 1. Maybe not ironically, a verse that the Jews would typically announce over a meal before they ate. The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. This food comes from him. And he's saying, yeah, it really does. Bless it all you want. But if it's not blessed, there's nothing wrong with it. Eat it. 
The bounty that we find in this world is a gift from God. We are free to enjoy that bounty. But at verse 27, Paul shifts then to a second scenario by way of application. So go into the market, buy the meat. Don't ask any questions. Don't worry about it. Not there. They're just selling it. Second scenario, verse 27. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. We're not here now in a pagan temple. We're not here now in the marketplace. We are here in the home of an unbeliever. And as with the marketplace purchase, it is appropriate for the believer to eat meat without worrying about whether or not it was sacrificed to a pagan idol. doesn't matter. It's just meat. You don't need to ask where it came from. Verse 28 now, I think there's a quick sideline with an exception. Verse 28, but if someone says to you this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I don't mean your conscience, but his. It seems most likely to me that Paul envisions here probably not a Christian at the meal. Why would that Christian even go to such a meal? Maybe it could be a Christian who brings that up at the meal and says, Hey, buddy, do you you realize this meat's been offered to idols? But probably more likely, and the Greek helps a little bit here in the word that's used, is more likely an unbeliever who's trying to be somewhat helpful. They know in Corinth, they're very familiar with Jews and their kosher laws about food. And so they recognize Jews can't eat our food because it's sacrificed to idols. And hey, you're Christians, Jews, I don't know, I don't know the difference. But hey, you know, friend, do you realize this? You might not want to eat this meat. Well, by saying that, what's that unbeliever saying? I'm making a connection between this meat and your devotion to Christ. And it seems to me that by eating that food, you won't be faithful in your devotion to Christ. Paul says, in that situation, are you free to eat meat? Yes, all things are lawful. Should you? No. Set it aside. Go vegetarian for this meal. You must lay down your freedom for the sake of the conscience of the one who is concerned about this matter. Now, Paul quickly qualifies. He's so concerned here. I think some of it is because it's a little bit of the trouble between him and the Corinthians. He really don't want, does not want us to misunderstand. And so he adds in verse 29, For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience if I partake with thanks, thankfulness? Why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? I, I think there's a bristling here that probably connects to the fact that he's been judged for eating such meat himself. He's going back to what was said formerly in the passage about eating meat in the marketplace, about eating meat when invited to a dinner in the home of an unbeliever. He probably got some heat for that. And he's saying here, if my conscience is clear, if I do this, and it says with thankfulness, I... It's a hard word to translate, but a phrase to translate, but I think that kind of sets us a little wrong direction there. Not thankfulness in the sense that, well, I'm really grateful for this, but in the sense of the reception of grace. 
That's the word that's used here, grace. So the idea then is if I can eat, sensing that in thy heart of hearts with all honesty that this is the grace of God being poured out to me, no one else's conscience should be used to manipulate me in that situation. I'm free to receive what God has provided as a gift of grace. But having said that, not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. And should someone object in this way, go vegetarian, at least for that meal. It goes back to what Paul said earlier, I'll never eat meat if it causes someone to stumble. So no one has the right to judge Paul theologically. His theologically defensible right to eat meat offered to idols should stand, but he will lay down that freedom if to do so is a benefit to the cause of the gospel. If I partake with thankfulness, that is, if I by grace partake, then I am receiving grace in that moment. It goes back to what he said in chapter 9, verse 19. For though I am free from all, that I am not under the dictate of the conscience of others, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. As he's relating to Jews in Corinth, there's a certain way he's going to think about food laws. He has rights to eat unkosher meat, but he lays that right down in order to win them to Christ. If he's with a Gentile, same thing from a different angle. Whatever freedom I have, I can lay it down for the cause of the gospel, and I'll do so by the grace of God. So Paul hits the central point now of this entire discussion in chapters 8 through 10 as we move forward to verse 31. And we draw this principle from these verses. Secondly, so learn to lay down freedoms for the spiritual good of others. And secondly, calibrate all of life to God's glory and the salvation of his people. This is, this, this is the right, uh, the, the natural conclusion to what he's been saying. Verse 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. So eating connects directly to the context of meat offered to idols, but he adds drinking and everything else under the sun. This is a central tenet of the Christian ethic. All glory to God in all of life. That is what should drive the believer in everything. And that's where our soul finds its rest. Because that's what we were created for. To bring glory to God in everything that we do. As the redeemed of the Lord, it is our high calling. As the redeemed of the Lord, to no longer live for ourselves, but for Him who for our sakes died and rose again. That's the great shift the transformation in the Christian life, to live for Christ. We are redeemed to do everything to God's glory, insisting on, think of this, all for God's glory, while I'm insisting on my freedoms in Christ. It doesn't make sense. My freedoms in Christ must take a back seat to the mission of helping people see God's unique godness. 
his glory, his surpassing excellence, the stunning splendor of his being compared to all others. I, my life is to be lived to help people see that in what I say, in what I do, in the ethical choices that I make. Not, hey, I'm free. I do what I want. Get out of my face. But Christ laid down his life for me and I'll lay down my life for you. I will lay down my freedoms that Christ would be magnified. I must do nothing to get in the way of that. And we all do. But we need to strive to say that's not where I'm going to go. I must care less about preserving my rights, exercising my freedoms, and more about living so that others praise God for who he is. Paul's not saying here we play a game and we play act and we do whatever anybody's script tells us to do. He made that quite clear, didn't he? There's nobody who rules my conscience but God alone, ultimately. And of course, that is a community project. He's not saying that, but he's saying calibrate your life to bring honor to Christ and live in love. Verse 32, give no offense then. This is how does living for God's glory manifest itself in daily life. It looks like this, verse 32, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything that I do. Christian maturity is evidenced by our zeal to cause no one to stumble or take a single step away from Christ, whether lost, Jew, Gentile, or a member of the body of Christ. By giving no offense, Paul, of course, does not mean he will never hurt someone's feelings. It doesn't mean that he will never offend or upset or annoy or incur people's resentment necessarily. Lots of examples where that's not what he means. But by pleasing everyone, let's also know he doesn't speak here of what is called man-pleasing, a pleasing people, doing whatever they want to do. Notice how he says it so differently here, same point. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. He just said, I do everything to please everybody. And now he says here, I don't live to please man. We've got to understand what he means by this. What he means is verse 33b. Not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. That's what he means by pleasing all. Not getting in the way of people seeing the glory of Christ and his salvation. So this again takes us back to 9, 19 and following. Paul stresses he's willing to lay aside anything, any freedom, any right in order to see the gospel advanced. And so concludes it in 11.1, one of the more unfortunate glaringly misguided chapter divisions in the New Testament. We know this, right? The chapter divisions, the verses are not inspired by the Spirit of God. This one really blew it. 
But he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. That's where he's driving with all this. This is one of, uh, Paul clinches his instruction with saying in so many words, what I'm encouraging you to do is to follow the example of Christ who laid down his rights, his freedoms, his privileges, and glory to die on a Roman cross for your redemption. That's how Jesus lived, live like that. And as you look at my life, my life has been a testimony of this. I'm only asking you to do what I'm striving to do in my own life. I have the right to receive from you compensation for my ministry in the gospel. And I've laid it aside. So that I would not in any way, shape, or form compromise the gospel message in Corinth. I have a right to bring a wife along and for you to support her in my work. I've laid that right aside. I've taken that freedom and I've said I'm not going to exercise it. I have the right to eat meat sacrificed to idols right in the face of a Jewish unbeliever. Right in the face of a weak Christian who sees that as a compromise of devotion to Christ. I have that right. I have that freedom. My conscience is clear in the sense that I know that in doing this, I'd be receiving the grace of God, not trashing it. But I take that right and I lay it down. All for the gospel. All for the glory of God. And my example before you, Paul says, is simply a reflection of the much deeper, profounder example of Jesus for us. Well, we live, do we not, in a world that is drunk on rights and freedoms. But knowing Christ, we learn that love rejoices to lay down those freedoms for the good of others. The kind of love that the new birth nurtures in the believer's soul is the kind of love that places God's glory above all else and the edification of believers above the exercise of my own rights and conscience-confirming freedoms. This is why when new members join covenant to join this assembly, when we as members reaffirm our covenant together, that there is a line in there that commits us to cause no, no one to stumble. That little phrase that we recite time and time again is saying, by the grace of God, I will commit to a life that lays down freedom and right for the edification of my brothers and sisters in Christ, for the testimony of Christ in this world. Do you have that category of what I could do that I won't do? May God grant us wisdom to lay down those freedoms, to lay aside the proper exercise of power, to win others to Christ, to build up his body. And as we work to that end as a church, we witness in this passage a rather robust view of our freedom in Christ to live as we deem best, to make ethical decisions that are not based on the dictates of the conscience of others, but on our own, and again, on our own in community as the body of Christ. 
Yet on the other hand, we witness a call to lay down our freedoms, our rights for the good of others and for God's glory. That, that tension we must come to terms with. What I can technically do without violating God's law may be the very thing that he calls me in love to sacrifice for the glory of God and the edification of others. One author I've borrowed from Andy Nacelli, but he's drawing from another author's, put this in a graphic that I think is very helpful. Let us just chew on it just momentarily. I worked my tail off to get those things to vanish, and I couldn't figure it out. I gave up. I needed help, but I was on my own at this point, let's just say. Does the Bible allow it? As we make ethical decisions, does the Bible allow it? If not, then obviously we don't do it. But if we have a sense that Scripture would allow this ethical choice, then... We move to a second question. Does my conscience allow it? Now, Paul hasn't hit that issue a lot here in this particular passage, but he does in his teaching, and we must always be sensitive to conscience. Even if we have a sense, I'm pretty sure my conscience needs to be trained and developed, I'm not going to violate it. So if my conscience does not allow it, I don't do it. But if my conscience allows it, I'm not done. And this is what I think a lot of Christians miss. The Bible permits, my conscience permits, forget the rest of you. I have the freedom to do this because no one's going to dictate my conscience. Paul has a piece of that chip there, but he doesn't end there. Now I ask some more questions. What is the effect on other Christians? Love is more important than knowledge. Knowledge is the first two boxes. But love for my brothers and sisters in Christ is more important. Second, what is the effect on non-Christians? The gospel is more important than rights. And thirdly, what is the effect on my spiritual life? Spiritual health is more important than freedom. The three questions in that last box are critical. They push us well past what I personally believe that I have the freedom to do in Christ. They rightly push us to ask what love would do. They press us to ask what genuine love would be willing to give. What we eat, what we drink, the places we go, the activities in which we engage, all of which we could legitimately pursue in full conviction that they would be channels of God's grace to us, may in fact be sacrifices we place on the altar of God's higher purposes. This loving sacrifice may well start in the home. What must I lay down there? For the good of my family, my mate. Mates and children and church members. What rights and freedoms might love encourage us to sacrifice for the glory of God and the holiness of his people? For those who do not know Christ as Savior, these questions are really hard to put into place. 
But let me just assure you that the love, the life of love that gives itself away is not one you can live and thus please God. That life of love was lived for you by Christ who laid down his life, who gave up his freedoms for your redemption, for the redemption of his people. His death, his resurrection We are called simply not to perform that love, but to receive it. Have you received that gift, putting your faith and your confidence in the life that Jesus laid down for his people? I call you to consider that today, to come to that place in your life where you embrace Christ in that way. The purpose of life for everyone is not a choice that we make. It is verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Every soul was created to find its rest, its hope, and its purpose in that one overarching call. To bring glory to the God who has given us life in Christ. To declare his excellencies, to lift up his name, in that is our soul's rest. And around that theme, we now gather at this table to say that that is my purpose. I identify with that message of Christ crucified and risen to the glory of God throughout all eternity. Father, please, as we gather now in this time, around this table. I pray, Father, that we would take to heart what we are doing and consider the life that we have in Jesus. Steer us, direct us, and may you continue to draw to saving light those who are apart from you and cannot gather at this table in fellowship and in rejoicing of Christ's Lordship. But for those of us who can, meet with us here and draw us near, we pray in Christ's name.